Welcome back to the Real Women's Health Podcast. Today's episode is about pregnancy during a pandemic and the COVID vaccine. I'm thrilled to bring you the one and only Dr. Desmond Sutton, a third year maternal fetal medicine specialist at Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City. He's one of my closest friends and a former co-resident from Brown University, Women and Infants Hospital, and he's also a brilliant high-risk obstetrician. We discuss, is it safe to get pregnant during a pandemic? Is COVID transmitted from mom to baby in the uterus? What should you do if you get COVID while pregnant? And should you receive the COVID vaccine if you're pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant? We discuss these topics and many more, so stay tuned for our episode number eight, Pregnancy During a Pandemic and the COVID Vaccine with Dr. Desmond Sutton. Why do I have this? T-shaped uterus. Excellent question. The vagina is a powerful machine. A vagina is glorious. glorious. And it's entertaining and fun, too. Because I know what's inside of girls like you and like me. Now it is time for the physical examination. Let's go take a look at your Volvo. Well, that's when we take a new baby out of a lady's tummy. Your symptoms sound hormonal to me. I'd like a second opinion. This seems very questionable. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, and this is the Real Women's Health Podcast. Welcome back to the Real Women's Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, fellowship-trained breast cancer surgeon, board-certified gynecologist, and today I actually have a special treat for all of you because I'm here with Dr. Desmond Sutton, who is not only a brilliant high-risk obstetrician or maternal fetal medicine doctor, but he's also one of my co-residents and one of my best friends. And so I've lassoed him here into doing this with me. Uh, Des, I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. This is amazing. Yeah, you should be honored. So Dr. Sutton and I actually did residency together. He was a year behind me, but that doesn't mean that I'm older than him or anything. I'm obviously 10 years younger than he is. I used to say that I taught him everything he knows, but unfortunately, now that he's a fellowship-trained high-risk obstetrician, he knows more about maternal fetal health than I do. And so that's why I brought him onto this podcast, so that you can learn all about what Dr. Sutton does, what he's working on, he'll drop some knowledge bombs on us, and um, just basically improve your overall health and well-being. Dr. Sutton, or Des, is a third-year maternal fetal medicine fellow at Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City, where I used to live. His most recent research focuses on COVID-19 infection and pregnancy, racial disparities in maternal morbidity, as well as other patient quality and safety projects. Dr. Sutton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I was I, I look forward to, hopefully you have some time at the end so I can tell you a little bit of... Uh residency stories about you. Yeah, so why don't you start by telling us why you, as a young gentleman, decided to go into obstetrics and gynecology? Yeah, it's a good question. I um, had a really kind of like serendipitous, weird kind of like lifetime movie experience in medical school. So for the viewers, third year of medical school is classically when you rotate through all the what we call core subspecialties. So like, you know, pediatrics, general surgery, internal medicine. Um, and OBGYN is a course of specialty. And so I kind of came into it initially wanting to do um, IC, medical ICU because I really liked intensive care medicine, um, but then just fell in love with the labor floor, to be honest. And I think one of the things that really struck me was 
in internal medicine and ICU, I felt like we were admitting patients to the hospital and discharging them and kind of keep going back and forth until eventually they didn't leave the hospital, unfortunately. Um, where kind of OB was the opposite end of the spectrum. We were kind of focusing on like expanding people's families, you know, kind of guiding the transition of life into the world. Um, and it was also just medically more complex because you kind of had two patients in one, the baby and the mom. Um, and then I kind of, the week after, kind of naturally found um, or accidentally found high-risk pregnancy by going to the wrong clinic because I wasn't the best medical student. Um, and then ended up loving it. It felt serendipitous, like the universe was telling me something. And then the following week, I found out that I was actually born on the same floor that I was doing my OB rotation on, which I had no idea. Um, so that, that's like sums it up. That's why I really had a lot of interest in uh, complicated medical issues, love pregnancy, love labor and delivery. Um, all those things led me to high-risk pregnancy. Yeah, and ultimately led you to the best residency program in the world, Brown University Women and Infants Hospital, where you met me, but not only that, you came to interview and my class actually recruited you. I don't know if you remember this, but you came over to Martha's house and we played charades and it was like adult style charades and you probably were like, these people are crazy. And we had boys versus girls and it was really fun. Yeah, I remember because I was I did med school here in New York City and I was thinking like, am I gonna really leave the big city to move to Providence, Rhode Island where we were at Brown University? Um, and you convinced me because I was like, if this girl can have fun in Providence, then I can definitely have fun in Providence. Yeah, residency is hard work, but if you love the people that you work with, it can also be a lot of fun too. And well, hopefully we were able to instill that message to you. So then we did residency together. And did you always know that you wanted to do an MFM or maternal fetal medicine fellowship? Yeah, I mean, I came into residency wanting to do high-risk pregnancy, and as I wasn't 100% sure, you know, the other thing, OBGYN is big in pregnancy and GYN surgery, for your viewers to know. Um, so we kind of have to make that decision. Um, do you want to, like, kind of do both and be a generalist? Do you want to kind of subspecialize and do, like, something like gynonc or breast cancer surgery, or do you want to do something more subspecialized in OB? Um, for me, at the end of the day, I think I knew that if I'm in the OR for longer than three hours, I'm not a happy camper. So um, I knew that a, a surgical subspecialty wasn't going to likely be for me. But I also knew that I wanted sick patients. I liked having like complicated medical issues. So that kind of confirmed for me anyway that I wanted to do high risk pregnancy. I know you felt very differently. You were very not into high risk pregnancy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, out of all the things I did in residency, MFM was probably my least favorite. Not that I don't love taking care of pregnant women, but I just, there were other things I liked more. So, you do four years of medical school, then four years of residency, and then how long is your fellowship? So, fellowship is three years long. So, it's four mm -hmm. med school, four residency, three years of fellowship. Um, like, I've honestly gotten so lucky because... Uh, I've kind of had dream experiences in all my training and my medical school. I haven't had a great residency experience. I've had an unbelievable fellowship experience. Um, yeah, I have no regrets about the time or the commitment that I've put into it. Yeah, so you're basically an expert doctor of two patients at a time, especially um, essentially in complicated situations. So let's get to what everyone wants to know about. So you and I were both in New York City when the COVID-19 pandemic started in March. And I was kind of going through my own thing in Brooklyn with our breast patients, but you were in Manhattan and uh, dealing with the pandemic 
from an obstetrics perspective. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience back when that happened and what you guys did? Yeah, it was kind of scary. Um, I, we cut everyone was, I, I felt like the whole country was kind of caught with their pants down, kind of in a sense in terms of COVID because we were, we were frankly just not prepared. We didn't really know what was coming down the pipeline. Part of that was due to like government issues. Part of that was just, we never dealt like this for like over a hundred years, dealt with anything like this for over a hundred years. Um, but Al, I remember it was March 16th. I remember the day because it was kind of traumatic where we had a patient come in and was healthy, fine, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of her labor, kind of developed into florid COVID-like symptoms. Um, and we tested her, and she ended up being positive. And from that experience, we ended up having, like, I think, 12 healthcare workers who were exposed to COVID, some with, like, high risk. Um, so that was a big wake-up call for my department. And, like, overnight, everything changed. We ended up doing universal screening for everyone um, when they came into the hospital to get admitted for delivery or surgery. Uh, we ended up making all these guidelines. We ended up having like emergency um, nightly meetings via Zoom with our entire department. Um, yeah, everything changed overnight. And so what we our what we found our balance was um, with the universal screening, we were able to safely take care of patients and their partners and have um, uh, safe admissions and just overall being able to make sure that we contain and decrease the risk of um, incidental transmission as much as possible. So you're allowed to let patient uh, partners come in with them for labor as well because I know, well, because some of you know for a lot, like specifically for me right now in Florida, like we're doing everything we can to keep patients safe with all of our COVID precautions, but unfortunately family members can't come with patients uh, to their surgery. And so you guys were able to implement strategies to make that safe for everyone? Yeah, initially when we didn't have um, access to a lot of like testing materials, we actually forbade partners from coming, which was a very difficult decision and traumatic for patients and providers, quite honestly, to have to um, put women through that. Um, eventually we were able to allow partners to come back in and we had like standardized procedures and protocols to try to limit the risk of exposure to other patients and healthcare workers. Um, but it took some time. We, it, it was definitely a, it was a steep learning curve. We had to kind of make new policies and new policies and procedures. It seems like almost like every 24 to like 12 hours. Yeah, it was definitely a rapidly evolving situation for sure. So what kind of complications? So if a pregnant woman is diagnosed with or contracts COVID during pregnancy, what kind of complications do you see? Yeah, so um, initially in the beginning of the pandemic, we weren't seeing a lot of complications. Um, but as time went on and more data came out, we did find that pregnant women are considered a high risk group when it comes to COVID-19 infection, namely that they're a higher risk for uh, severe illness. So when we say severe illness with COVID-19, we say that, you know, your bottle signs are very abnormal, your oxygen level, level, the oxygen saturation level in your blood or how well you're oxygenating your blood or delivering oxygen to your body. Um, is decreased. And for pregnant women, they're at higher risk of needing admission to the intensive care unit, needing to be um, uh, intubated or put on a ventilation machines to help them breathe, and needing what we call cardiopulmonary bypass or ECMO, um, which is a device that we put patients on to kind of bypass their heart and lungs because they are so sick. And so we know that patients are at high risk of all those things, and patients are at higher risk of unfortunately like dying from, from COVID-19. 
So what advice would you give to a woman who's considering becoming pregnant now or who's currently pregnant while we're still going through this pandemic? Yeah, I think now at this stage in the pandemic, now that we have access to PPE, typically, I mean, you should always be kind of cognizant and aware of what your surroundings are and what the supplies and resources are like where you live. Um, But typically now we tell patients that they can safely get pregnant because we know that if you're wearing masks and you're social distancing and you're washing your hands and also like having eye protection when you're in like close quarters of people that we can reasonably like reduce your risk of getting COVID-19. Um, and we have a, a, a lot more therapeutics now. There's remdesivir, there's like convalescent plasma, although convalescent plasma unfortunately can't be given to pregnant patients. Um, but there's other things we can do now um, to try to decrease your risk of having severe consequences from COVID-19. I mean, it was in the beginning of the pandemic that we weren't giving patients um, steroids because we thought that it could harm them. But now we know it's actually the exact opposite, that IV steroids can help people with COVID-19. So a lot of things have changed Um, in terms of therapeutics and supplies and resources that I think it's safe for patients to get pregnant as long as they follow the the appropriate guidelines in terms of social distancing and wearing masks. Yeah, I didn't, um, I actually just thought of a question. So hopefully you can answer it. But what if a patient gets pregnant while her partner has COVID? Like, can COVID be passed through semen? So that's a good question. Um, I don't know if COVID is present in semen because I'm a gynecologist at heart. Um, but what, yeah. what we do know is that we didn't see like an increased rate of miscarriages or um, uh, like uh, preterm births during COVID. Um, and right now, although there have been some case reports of in utero transmission, so meaning the virus passes through the placenta to the fetus, um, those have been relatively rare. And I mean, I think that's reassuring because it's a pandemic. And I mean, right now we have over half a million people who've died from the pandemic. So if it was something that could happen pretty frequently based on the number of people that have been infected in the country, we would we would see it right now. And we just haven't seen that. We haven't really seen an increased rate of, of stillbirths. We haven't seen an increased rate of preterm births. Um, so I think even if you, what I tell patients is that if you're, if, as long as we keep you healthy, even if you do have COVID, everything should be fine for your pregnancy. It's really if you get a severe illness, like the things we were talking about with ICU admission and you know having your oxygen saturation drop, that's when we can get into the danger zone. Um, and you are at higher risk of having that happen to you because you are pregnant. But I don't think it's to the point that we would stop people from getting pregnant because of the pandemic, especially not at this stage that we're at. Yeah, what if you had a patient with like a really big medical problem like cystic fibrosis or some other like really significant lung problem. How do you counsel those patients? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I think it depends on a lot of different factors. Like, you know, is this a cystic fibrosis patient that lives in the suburbs where they can like reasonably social distance and, you know, they have access to masks and, you know, they don't have family members who are healthcare workers or school teachers or they have, or who have other occupational hazards that would expose them to COVID. I would be less concerned as opposed if you know if you're living in a, a city in an apartment building with like you know multiple other people who are in and out then we might want to have a different kind of conversation um, and we also might want to talk about the vaccine at some point as well uh yeah that's true which we will get to but what also would you tell a patient though who's pregnant and needs to come in for those frequent prenatal care visits like what do you tell those patients yeah, I think um, we, so. The one silver lining um, about the pandemic is really like catapulted our telehealth just capabilities. I don't know how what your experience has been like, but it's kind of revolutionized healthcare in a in a good way from that standpoint. 
Um, we now do a lot of our prenatal care visits, the ones that we can do um, virtually. We do a lot of them virtually. And for patients, and now we've started doing things like, you know, giving patients scales to take home and blood pressure cuffs so that they can take their own blood pressure, they can weigh themselves, and they can report that information for us um, virtually. There are still some things that patients have to come in for, like, you know, you need your diabetes screening tests, you need like ultrasounds, that stuff we can't avoid. But some of the other visits we can definitely like significantly limit by doing through telehealth. Yeah, for for my job, it has really made it very easy. Um, and, you know, it kind of makes me wonder why we didn't do this sooner, too, because, you know, I think the rate limiting step was probably payers like insurance companies. And now that uh, this has happened, it makes lives a lot easier for a lot of our patients, not just from like a pregnancy standpoint, but, you know, I do a lot of virtual follow-up visits and I like to see all my patients in person the first time because for me, the clinical exam is important. Can't always get the whole picture from a patient's mammogram or ultrasound or even MRI. Um, But then I do a lot of my follow-ups virtually, especially because it's funny here down in Miami, like if patients live 45 minutes away, like the satellite that I go to in this town called Plantation, they do not want to come to Miami. They like staying in the suburbs, and so it's way easier for me to make contact with my patients, but I can just have my nurse help me get them on Zoom, and I've been really pleased with how great all of my patients are, even like the older ones or maybe patients who aren't so technologically adept um, at like how gung-ho they are about doing Zoom, and it's nice because when you uh, Zoom with your patient, you can finally see their entire face. When I'm telling a patient that they have breast cancer or explaining their breast cancer diagnosis, I have to like emote through a mask, show them that I care through a mask without touching them. Um, I have to see their face through the mask, comfort them, and then like make sure that I'm like reading all of their body cues through their eyes and it's hard and so, I like that you finally get to see patients' faces. Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, the payer situation definitely helped with, and hopefully that won't be going backwards. I don't think they can really take it away now that they've given it to us. I also have found mm-hmm. being in a city, especially because I work up here in Washington Heights, um, there's something, I mean, I don't I don't even know if this is like, it's not inappropriate to say, but being able to see a patient in their own home, you kind of get a different dimension of who they are as a person. You can kind of like, see um, their own, like uh, their struggles, the things they might be dealing with that they would never tell you or bring into the office. Yeah, like you can get a sense of how, who all they're caring for. Like if they're really distracted and they have like a lot of kids and they're doing all these other things or if, um, yeah, I can, I can totally see that. That's a really good point. I do like seeing patients in kind of like their natural habitat. And I also like that they can have their partners or their family members with them too when we do it that way. Yeah, and I think it also it's helpful for them to see like how patients live because a lot of our trainees don't live in New York and they have no idea what patients can be dealing with um, at home. But when they like actually see it and they see all the they see that they have kids or they see they have a sick family member, they, I think they get a kind of different impersonation and they a, appreciation of their own privilege, but also like an appreciation of like all the obstacles and issues the patient might have, um, and that makes them a little bit more compassionate. Yeah, that's a really, really good point because we're not always exposed to all of those aspects of our patients' lives. Um, let's talk about vaccines, uh, the controversy, the the horror, the success, 
the trials and tribulations. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you're recommending, you know, whether you're recommending that patients get the vaccine when they're pregnant? So I think uh, it's a maybe usually. And it's every patient is honestly going to be different. Right now, what we know is that the vaccine is really good at preventing severe illness. Um, Because what they did in the in the phase three clinical trials, they showed that um, patients are less likely to need to go to the hospital and get admitted and have severe outcomes or severe side effects or consequences rather um, from COVID-19 vaccine. Um, Now, it had been great if they included some pregnant patients in the trial, but they did not. So we're kind of left trying to make the best decision we can with the information that we have. So right now, we really don't have any absolute answers on the effect of the vaccine and pregnancy. We don't know. We can't say for sure that it's like has no risk to the pregnancy or to the mother. Um, but what we can say is that there's very little what we say biological plausibility, meaning um, the way the vaccine works, we can't theorize why that would negatively affect a woman's health or a, a fetus or, or a, a baby inside the womb. Um, and what I usually tell my patients is kind of a balance. So it's a balance of the, the theoretical risk of the vaccine, which we think is relatively low based on, the, again, that low biological plausibility versus the risk of them getting infected and then getting a severe infection from COVID-19 in pregnancy. So, you know, if a patient is, again, in the suburbs, working from home, husband's also working from home, they can self-isolate, she is um, non-obese, doesn't have diabetes or hypertension or any kind of complications, she's probably okay to like sit this one out if she really didn't want to get the vaccine right now. Now, if a patient otherwise is like, you know, of um, Hispanic ethnicity living in, you know, a big metropolitan area like New York City has diabetes or hypertension or any other kind of complications where if she got sick, if she caught COVID, she can get really sick and she has a job that makes it that she needs to leave the home and take mass transportation, we might have a different conversation that she might want to consider taking the vaccine, knowing that there's some like unknown risk. But again, that's the real risk of her getting sick and severely ill with COVID versus these like theoretical risks of the vaccine in pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about why you said Hispanic women? So what we do know, unfortunately, and some of this is a lot of the data now is actually showing that Hispanic and Black patients um, they don't necessarily suffer the, the severe effects of COVID more often, but it definitely disproportionately affects that population more often. More of them are catching it. And some of that might just be due to the nature of the environment that they live in. Um, but right now we do see that like Black and Hispanic patients die more often from COVID than non-Black and Hispanic patients, unfortunately. And so I kind of take that into my counseling. Again, that, that it, there's a little bit of a nuance to that conversation because some of it might not necessarily be related to their race or ethnicity. Some of it might just be capturing other factors like, you know, where they're living, if they're living in a city or they're living in more close quarters. Um, but I mean, I think we do need to talk about it because there is a significant, significant racial disparity in outcomes with COVID. And I, I do think we need to at least have that conversation with patients. Yeah, definitely. Can you comment on the myth that the vaccine causes infertility with regards to the placenta, et cetera? Yeah, so we actually have had this conversation with a bunch of our infertility specialists um, where I'm at at Columbia, and we all kind of have the same opinion that we, while we understand where that concern comes from, it comes from, uh, there's a sequence in the, the, the DNA or the RNA of the vaccine that matches um, some of the sequences on the cells in the placenta. 
um, and there's concern that this might cross-react. Um, the one thing I think people should remember is that uh, a protein, if you like Google what a protein actually looks like, it's like folded on top of itself like a thousand times. So it's not necessarily for sure that this coding region will even be visible to your body. Um, but more importantly, if you actually get COVID, you're still going to make these antibodies. And right now, with all the people that have COVID in this country, we don't see a bunch of infertility. We're not seeing a bigger rate of miscarriages. We're not seeing a, a large rate, uh, increasing rate of infertility. So if the COVID virus itself isn't causing the infertility and making you develop these antibodies, we don't see how the vaccine would do that either. Yeah, that's a really great point. I hadn't thought about it that way. So I'm glad I asked you that question because my mom actually was like, make sure you have Desmond answer this question. So yeah. yeah, hi mom. Okay, now that we're talking about vaccines and pregnancy though, do you, would you recommend like during flu season that pregnant patients also get their flu vaccine? Yes, 100%. Um, especially if you have like asthma or like pulmonary comorbidities. Um, or, or pulmonary issues like cystic fibrosis and whatnot, we know that uh, pregnant patients are more likely to, to um, suffer severe consequences of flu because um, it's another pulmonary infection. And we know that receipt of the flu vaccine can significantly decrease the risk of them getting very sick with the flu. Um, so absolutely, I would always recommend pregnant patients take the flu vaccine and really almost anyone. I mean, it's the flu vaccine. We should all take it. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's also interesting to see how, I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but like the flu numbers have significantly decreased this year, um, probably because of all the social distancing and the masking. Yeah, I know. That's so crazy. But it just tells you how effective that strategy really is. Yeah, definitely. Well, Des, are there any other specific myths that patients bring to you about COVID and pregnancy or the vaccine that you want to dispel for us today? I feel like we touched on all the major ones. Yeah, I think infertility is the big one. Um, that's like a myth right now. We don't have any kind of data to show that. And again, based on the current pandemic, I would see why that would be the case. Um, I think that, you know, there's some patients that feel like they really should take the vaccine and some patients that feel like they really should not. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer for it. I think you should just have a, a conversation with your doctor and just, again, keep in mind, what are your risks of getting COVID? And if you do get COVID, what are your risks of getting severe COVID? Um, what do you recommend to patients like who are taking all those extra vitamins and uh, vitamins uh, for COVID prevention or COVID treatment and patients who want to take maybe hydroxychloroquine, et cetera. Can you comment on that a little bit? We don't, we, hydroxychloroquine has not been used since like the first few months of the pandemic. That has not been shown to be effective. It's not dangerous in pregnancy. There are plenty of patients who are on it for lupus, um, but it just won't really help you. So don't take that. And it has very significant side effects. So definitely don't take that. Um, what was the other question? Yeah, so patients who maybe find out that they have COVID or are like doing prophylaxis will take these high doses of vitamin D and stuff like that. Have you heard that like vitamin C and vitamin D? I've heard of like, you know, use of that in conjunction with hydroxychloroquine and that might be the reason that it works, but mm -hmm. I haven't seen any definitive evidence or like any supporting evidence for that. Um, there are vitamin D is important in pregnancy at baseline though. Um, so if a patient thinks that they might be deficient in vitamin D, like they live in a city where they don't get a lot of sunlight or they work in a place where they don't get a lot of sunlight, they should, you know, get those levels checked as a part of their routine prenatal visit. 
because um, supplementation of vitamin D has been shown to help in like with diseases like preeclampsia and other complications of pregnancy. But for COVID in general, I don't think there's really much to that. Yeah, and I would say for patients who are thinking that they want to take extra supplements during pregnancy, to always talk to your own doctor first because you know sometimes the things that are hiding in these supplements or just certain types of vitamins you don't want to overdo in pregnancy. So I would say don't take a bunch of extra vitamins without talking to your own doctor first. Would you agree? Definitely. And to remember that these aren't regulated by the FDA, these supplements. Like, you know, you go into like a CVS or a Rite Aid or a pharmacy and you think this must be safe. Um, but there's actually very little oversight over who makes that and what they put into it. So definitely always consult your doctor. Yeah. If I had a nickel for every time I had to like tell people not to go into GNC and buy something that's supposed to cure their breast cancer, I'd be so rich by now. But um, that just like applies to, I think, so many problems. So those are all the questions that I had for you. And thank you so much for giving us all of your expertise. The next time we have a national pandemic or crisis because, well, hopefully never, but your career is like catapulting into the stars and you are a national expert and I just can't wait to see what you do next. And so I have a feeling that as everyone, you know, starts to listen to the Real Women's Health podcast every day and it becomes obviously a staple in their everyday lives, I have a feeling that I'm going to have you back on again, if you'll come. I would love to, anytime. Hopefully I'll make it higher in the list this time. It won't be like the fourth or fifth choice. Hopefully next time we can do it in person, you can come down to Miami Beach to visit us. Yes, I would love that. Yes. Okay, well, thank you everyone for tuning in to the Real Women's Health Podcast. Dr. Desmond Sutton, Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellow at Columbia University in New York City, who's about to start a new job that we can't tell you about yet, but we'll keep you posted. And his Instagram is on... Um, it's uh, Desmond Sutton MD at Instagram. Yeah, follow Desmond for some interesting information. Um, him and his brother both like to give a lot of good public health info. And so his twin brother is so cute. And thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you guys for being here. Until next time. Bye. Bye. As a reminder, all information, content, material for this website and podcast is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, or medical treatment of a qualified physician or your own healthcare provider. The information contained in this podcast is not intended to recommend the self-management of health problems or wellness. It's not intended to endorse or recommend any particular type of medical treatment. And should you, the listener, have any healthcare-related questions specific to your own pregnancy or gynecologic health, promptly call or consult your physician or your own healthcare provider. I have no relevant financial conflicts of interest to disclose, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Kristen Rojas MD. That's at K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-O-J-A-S-M-D. For any questions or comments, you can email me at realwomenshealth at gmail.com. Don't forget to like or rate our podcast and share it with your friends. Stay safe, everyone.